Homelessness is perhaps, I think, the greatest challenge that we're facing often with our communities and our societies. Just like your firefighters, your police officers, your medical workers, you want to make sure the essential workers who are on the front lines of your homeless systems have the best tools available. It's an age-old question. Can you do well by doing good? Welcome to the Grow for Good podcast, where we speak with leaders who strive to make a positive impact on the world. Here's the host of the Grow for Good podcast, Jed Morey. The world of SaaS, or software as a service, is heating up. As more and more of the economy migrates to the cloud to find operational solutions for real-world problems, SaaS platforms are booming and improving every day. Platform development is in high demand, and the market is getting increasingly competitive. From accounting and HR to marketing and finance, the business of business is being reimagined in the cloud. But what if the business issue you're trying to solve isn't marketing or sales related? What if it's something more than just streamlining work processes to enhance outcomes in various business departments? What if your business was helping humans? Humans who have fallen through the cracks and rely on safety nets and services to merely survive. What would that even look like? Since 2003, a company called Bitfocus has been doing just that. Bitfocus helps communities use technology, data, and policy to improve their systems of care. It's a software company that designs data systems such as Clarity Human Services, their SaaS platform, to connect to communities' most vulnerable populations to the most effective services and resources available. Their outcomes are more than improved processes and productivity workflows. They're literally life-enhancing. We talked to Jeff Ugai, Chief Operating Officer of Bitfocus, about their approach to technology, the markets they serve, and what it's been like to provide such a critical service during a pandemic. Welcome back to the Grow for Good podcast. I'm Jed Morey, CEO of Morey Creative Studios, executive producer of Newsbeat, and the host of Grow for Good. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Jeff Ugai, the Chief Operating Officer of Bitfocus to Grow for Good. Jeff, thanks for coming on the show. Delighted to be here, Jed. First off, Jeff is coming to us from beautiful Hawaii, so we appreciate you managing the time schedule with us. Jeff, just for reference, can you tell us which island you're on and how you've all fared so far during the coronavirus outbreak? Of course, yeah. Aloha from Kauai. We're just north of Oahu at the main population center here in Hawaii. Uh, We've been very lucky here on our small neck of the woods to have just a few cases here. Um, Though recently in Hawaii, um, as you may have read, things are uh, increasing pretty rapidly on Honolulu and there in the city. Okay, but you and your family and everybody uh, in your immediate sphere is doing okay? Yeah, we're all doing great. So thankful to be here in a lot worse places we could end up. Excellent. Well, we covered a lot of uh, bit focus in the introduction. And there's still a lot more for us to cover today. But I was hoping you could start off with the elevator pitch, so to speak, to describe BitFocus as a SaaS solution provider. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think we're really unique in this space, particularly in terms of, you know, technology companies that are working in case management or CRM software. Uh, Where we got our cell started was in Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, working with a homeless uh, youth service provider there, um, actually managing another vendor system. And so the story of Clarity Human Services and of BitFocus uh, really came from this organic need to be able to uh, address the needs of Las Vegas homeless youth and the broader population there in Nevada with a modern case management tool. And so that was the birth of our uh, SaaS solution, uh, Clarity Human Services. And since there, we've been uh, very lucky to work with a number of the communities across the U.S. I think who are really uh, moving the ball forward um, when it comes to addressing homelessness. There are two sides of the BitFocus stories I've seen. One is software as a service. And the other is actually more of a hands-on approach where your teams will coordinate closely with local agencies, maybe municipalities, we'll just call them organizations until we get further into it, 
Can you talk about the latter for a moment? What does that actually look like in practice, this hands-on support? Yeah, absolutely. You know, so we operate um, about 70 SaaS uh, implementations, like you mentioned, but for uh, approximately five of them, we're actually running the frontline operations of those, you know, so, and that includes Las Vegas, Nevada, where we all got started. So in the, those communities, we're not just providing the software or doing the help desk support, but we're there shoulder to shoulder in community meetings, trying to figure out how to place people from the streets or encampments all the way into housing. And so it's in those communities like Nevada, the Bay Area, Seattle, Washington, that we really, I think, see the best opportunity to be able to understand how that community is trying to address housing stability and to be able to match those technological solutions that we can offer as a vendor um, in that SaaS space with the provider needs that are actually going to try to get someone closer to that housing unit. So when you say shoulder to shoulder, you're talking about contractually, these um, some of these people will actually work for BitFocus as an organization, but they're on the ground with the community agency that you're supporting? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a little bit odd during the pandemic right now, but typically we're, you know, physically shoulder to shoulder in those meeting rooms. So in those communities um, that we're doing that, uh, we have two to three embedded staff, at least um, in each of those locations. And when it comes time to do the annual point in time homeless census um, every winter, when they're holding community outreach events or things like that, yeah, we're physically in the room uh, helping to lead those efforts. It's not fair probably to ask this because every territory is probably set up a little bit differently and everyone has different resources, but is there more value that comes with that direct personal contact where you have boots on the ground? Yeah, I think, you know, of course, a little bit biased in uh, thinking that we have a large impact there, but, the, you know, so HUD divides the nation to a number of geographic zones or continuous of care. And so it's those continuous of care that will contract with us to provide that type of service. And for the communities we've been lucky enough to have that type of relationship with, uh, we've been able to be involved in the conversation well before it gets time to design what data fields end up on the database or what the ultimate report's going to be. To kind of take an example back again from the Las Vegas area, um, when they were trying to address veteran homelessness in a meaningful way and really struggling with what the best assessment tool uh, was for their community, we were able to take some of the leading prioritization tools that are available, but adapt them to some of the unique local, uh, local needs, you know, gambling, uh, addiction, other issues that have greater prevalence in Las Vegas and other areas across the country, and make sure that those kind of decisions and calculations were taken into account before we got far down the road in terms of a software workflow or user interface that was going to support that system. So I want to get deeper in the second half of our conversation into how agencies can apply data to solve these problems in the community. But before that, I think it might be helpful to establish some definitions and talk about the issues that you're uh, helping to solve. Absolutely. Is it fair to say that the bulk of what Clarity, it's the BitFocus platform itself, is designed for is tracking the homeless population to determine their needs? And does it apply to other segments of the population? Is it too narrow to just say homeless? No, well, I think to break kind of two parts there, you know, first, you know, our industry, the kind of the problem is the homeless management information system, right? And when that first got started at a federal level, it came very much from that kind of tracking reporting perspective. And it was a federal requirement that HUD imposed on its grantees that you have to use this kind of a system to be able to report out the outcomes of your grants. And there's a lot of value to that. I think that's helping a lot of communities understand and better use uh, some scarce resources around what housing and services they want to provide. But what's been particularly exciting for uh, us, I think, in this industry over the past several years is working with uh, a number of customers and just the industry more broadly is see that transform to more of a client care and coordination platform like we see with an electronic healthcare record in the healthcare field. 
or any other kind of enterprise case management solution here. And that's really, I think, transformed the role that Clarity has in our communities from being something you're just using to take the boxes, make sure your funders are aware of the good work you're doing, to something that really transforms how you're interacting day to day with the clients that you're working with. We are unique in that we have maintained a pretty singular focus on homelessness. It's a very broad kind of social issue, though, and where we've seen a lot of expansions that I think the greatest potential for those providers that are more squarely focused on that is those partnerships that we've had with other mainstream systems of care or partners that affect that, right? So, you know, the same clients that we're working with to obtain stable housing, and particularly those clients that are having the most challenge with it, are also the ones typically that the healthcare systems, the judicial systems, the other large institutional systems of care are really struggling to have progress with as well. And so I think we see a lot of opportunity within our software to be able to have mutual success across those clients. So there's the mutual success. Do you think that the platform and the software itself will be ultimately scalable and uh, enough to program for other types of social service agencies to utilize in a similar fashion? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, that's another area where we've seen a lot of exciting things happen within uh, the homeless field here, right? One of the areas that we're hoping the clarity will evolve is to become really a true platform for homeless data, right? So we don't think that we're ever going to be the best healthcare uh, system of care. We're not going to be the best, you know, food bank software necessarily for some small providers. But I think for those records that really address them with house stability and homelessness, having a single system of uh, truth there that can really connect well with all those other related systems is where we see our advantage. And I think those communities that are using our software most successfully really have developed some nice deep integrations with the other best of breed software and their particular verticals that are related to this. Got it. So can you talk about some of your community and business partners, like the types of agencies that find success with BitFocus? And what does success look like when they measure their partnership with you? Yeah, well, I mean, ultimately, I think success looks like getting homeless individuals in their communities to greater housing stability, right? The road to that looks a lot, a lot of different ways, depending on the community that we're working in, right? Um, and we're proud, I think, to be able to have success with a pretty diverse range of communities and organizations working to address homelessness, you know? So like our smallest customer, kind of, for example, over in Guam, we've been really excited to be able to see, you know, a system of five or six people be able to, for the first time, have an understanding of their impact kind of cohesively across not just the island, but their neighbor islands within the Pacific there, be able to qualify for more HUD funding, including a new DB program and some emergency solution grant funding because of that. Um, and given the size, the scale of their system, pr- pretty remarkable achievement, you know, for them. And then kind of on the other end of our spectrum, our largest customer, Los Angeles, currently we're working with them on Project Roomkey in California to set up their response to the COVID crisis. I think it's a little over 15,000 hotel beds that they are putting people into right now. Mm. they're particularly exciting in just the scale of resources they're able to bring to the table, right? And so to use, not just be able to stand up all those rooms, but then now use that as an opportunity to pull people more deeply into a system of care that a number of them may not have been kind of fully integrated into is a really kind of unique thing that only a community with the resources, the scale of Los Angeles would be in a position to do well. Yeah, wow. I read in preparation for this, the National Alliance to End Homelessness generated a report to benchmark homelessness prior to the pandemic. And according to their research, in 2019, there were approximately 570,000 homeless Americans at any given time, which I think might be an important piece of the puzzle here, just how fluid the population is in their, their status of being housed. As a fluid figure, I assume that there are individuals and families who really live on the edge of financial disaster and move in and out of housing 
Can you dispel some of the preconceived ideas that we have about the population? Sort of the, the, the image of the person you trip over in the street and you assume that maybe there's some sort of mental development issue there and, oh, that person's just gone. They've fallen through the cracks. 570,000 people is a big figure. There's got to be individuals and families. And tell me a little bit about the population itself and how fluid it is. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that fluidity is a really important dimension of looking at homelessness, particularly uh, during a situation like now where, you know, we were looking back at some of the numbers from the Great Recession, what that type of a large economic impact can have on those who are on the margins, and, you know, but for one large event would be perfectly stable in their housing situation, right? Yeah, and to borrow off of uh, the National Alliance's work, you know, one of their research partners was a you know, professor out of Pennsylvania. I'll butcher his research a little bit, but Dennis Delhaye kind of broke things into three large categories in terms of uh, how we address homelessness. And I think still those categories more or less are how we've approached and structured our federal policies, right? What, what he was doing based on that research is, you know, that we have a, a chronically homeless population, an episodically homeless population, and then the majority of those being what he would call situationally homeless. And I think that fits what you were describing right there, Jenna. Those people who you know, but for a large medical bill, loss of a job, some other catastrophic economic event would otherwise be able to be housed, you know. And this is an area where it's both kind of daunting in terms of what we're facing with our current economic situation and, and how that may evolve over the couple of years, but also encouraging in the sense that I think we, for this population, have a pretty good record of success with some light touch interventions that could prevent a much longer or greater impact, you know. So, Going back to the Great Recessions, we had a pretty good impact with the rapid housing programs that are HBRP. And there's some initial research, certainly much more to be done, I think, around there. The show that providing some people whatever light supports are necessary to allow them either to retain the housing they're in or quickly move back to housing makes it much more likely that we're able to obtain kind of a long-term positive outcome for that family or household, right? And then, you know, to your other point, there is that small group of homelessness, I think, that the chronically homeless that all the communities we work with, right, that take a disproportionate number of the resources and the services, but also will have the greatest reward in terms of the impact of being able to obtain housing stability for that individual. And for those individuals, you know, pretty much entirely, not just will you save more money keeping them housed, but you're talking about a population that, but for some pretty substantial supports, will not be able to maintain the type of housing stability that would be required to maintain things at a market rate. When you talk about public policy and the federal response, is it possible that you can accumulate enough data over time to start to identify trends that could potentially influence public policy down the road? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, I think in a lot of our communities, at least on, on their local scale, have been very successful at doing that. You know, um, Las Vegas, for example, because they have very good data coverage, right? have been able to engage their local uh, managed organizations and a couple of their large hospital systems to, to fund housing units that have been demonstrated to have savings, you know, for their ER uh, nights or whatever they're using to track their um, cost of the, covering that individual, right? And one of the, I think, greatest opportunities in that front has been the Affordable Care Act and some of the expansion of Medicare and the programs, some of the states that we're working in. And where there is that financial responsibility to cover that individual now from an insurance perspective, that does sometimes enough to tip the balance, I think, in terms of the calculus for people in terms of whether or not a capital expenditure on housing or uh, housing-related support um, is effective. The other example, we've had a good example uh, efforts from that is in California, I think. They have a whole person care initiative that the state has funded that really tries to target those social determinants of health um, that just from a healthcare outcomes perspective, can have a market influence on someone's chronic conditions or other uh, long 
high cost items, basically, right? That's just a little bit different county to county, but uh, we've been working with Contra Costa County in the East Bay, and they've had uh, really great success linking our data up with data from their health information exchange locally mm. to be able to show that for their target population, here's the dollar-to-dollar kind of impact to be able to put someone in a permanent supportive housing unit versus kind of status quo on the street. So there are two types of companies that we typically profile on Grow for Good. All of them are for-profit, but they fall into two uh, general categories. And the first is a company that is designed to do good things and organized to make money. And the second is a company that is organized to make money, but happens to be identified just as much by the good that they do. BitFocus is very much in the former category. And these companies tend to feel pressure to provide services at heavily discounted rates and almost act like a nonprofit. Is that a real or a perceived challenge? It's both. I mean, I think, you know, there, there is a balance to be had, right, when you're trying to further a social good while also trying to build a business and build the uh, infrastructure that's going to allow you to be sustained and scale that, right? Um, and I think that's particularly true when we're working with a group that is resource scarce. You know, there simply aren't enough housing units, other services in these communities to house the need that there is, right? There's not enough beds to put every San Francisco who needs housing, you know, into a, a unit tonight. And every dollar, in theory, that you're giving us does leave fewer dollars overall to be able to spend towards that cause, right? At the same time, though, I think it's less of a, cons- a problem than you might think when we're actually working with communities, right? Just like in healthcare or any other kind of needs, that having the best tools available allows you to have the greatest impact of whatever scarce resources you have. And this is an area where making sure that we're truly delivering a top-notch product goes a long way. But I think also just as a SaaS company, being transparent and open and kind of upfront about what those costs are and uh, what they may be takes us a long way, right? So instead of having a large portfolio of professional services or kind of uh, a complex custom quoting pieces, just having a per-user kind of license base makes it really easy, I think, to see volunteer-volunteer License to license. Here's how the cost of maintaining this infrastructure scales with our community's response to the challenges facing, and hopefully, you know the outcomes that it's receiving as a result of that. Yeah, one of the things that strikes me the most about a discussion, any discussion around homelessness, is how cavalier the general broad discussions tend to be. In New York right now, where where we are, the homeless population has exploded again, and it's very visible. And mm-hmm. people have a very visceral reaction to it. So it's not lost on me that you know, you're, you're a SaaS technology player that has human intervention capabilities. So there is a human side of the business with professionals that can measure their results and you guys do great work. But it's got to be a little disheartening to see sometimes the, how the conversations evolve around the thing that you're trying to solve for. It's, it, that's, it has to be a different experience for you and your team than it is for you know, most other businesses. Yeah, it is. You know, the tone of the conversation has gotten a lot better, I think, in the past few years. So we've been kind of thankful for that. But you know, a, a good example of that, um, San Francisco is one of the communities that we're working in and where we have embedded staff. You know? um, and of course, also... The uh, headquarters of all of the large tech conglomerates, et cetera, right? Um, and when the city was growing at its quickest pace, and when there was the greatest expansion of those tech companies into the city and into the housing, there was major tension, you know, between the Googles, the Facebooks, the Twitter of the world, uh, and most of our constituents in the communities we're working in. And some pretty just emotional, visceral comments, you know, about the role, who should be in the city, whose city it was, 
who has the right to be on that sidewalk and who doesn't, you know, that's where the sit lie laws and all these, some of the more aggressive laws got passed. And then on the other side too, where we've seen some of the biggest step ups from some of our uh, community partners, you know, in that world as well. Right. <laughs> I think there's that a natural tension to all of that, but it's been very difficult. I think for us to be able to take the best lessons from that tech community cleanse them a little bit, right? <laughs> and then, you know, convince them that they're safe for consumption, I think, for, you know, some of those, in other words. But having that translator role is something we often find ourselves in, you know. I mean, even outside of, I think, the tech piece, because just the data that's collected by our systems and its ability to report out performance, et cetera, and it's used by HUD and other vendors, we have sometimes a mixed role between, you know, the the carrot and the stick of, you know, helping people do a better job, but then also the accountability of the people who have, been funding these or granting these and trying to understand that that may or may not be the best use of some of those dollars, sure. you know? Yeah. Trying to just, I think, just be transparent and open about how all of that works, you know, is the only way we've, I think, found to be able to navigate that successfully, but trying to learn. Well, it probably helps having uh, SaaS tech guys be able to talk to all the tech guys over in, uh, in San Francisco and be like, hey, we got this, right? Yeah, well, We're going to apply know, data. They're like, oh, then everything's okay. That is the positive piece to it. I think, you know, since everything else is progressing so quickly, you know, healthcare, et cetera, right? It has put a greater pressure on some of the less technologically savvy industries, I think, to get with the program. Uh, we're going to touch on that point in a second, too. First, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk to Jeff about how applying data and analytics to very human and sometimes messy problems can improve outcomes for everyone. Is your company looking to scale? Mori Creative Studios is a Diamond HubSpot partner agency that helps organizations leverage HubSpot's platform to achieve sustainable and predictable growth. From video production and inbound content marketing to sales and customer retention strategies, Mori Creative Studios provides comprehensive digital solutions for your company so you can grow for good. Visit moricreative.com to learn more. Welcome back to Grow for Good, where we talk to business leaders who are breaking down the barriers and proving the concept of doing well by doing good. Today, we're talking to Jeff Ugai from BitFocus, a leading SaaS platform and service organization that assists agencies and organizations to improve their systems of care. So, Jeff, I want to return to one of the themes before the break. We spoke briefly about the populations that you ultimately serve, sort of the end users, so to speak. How do your clients establish trust? in a community that is challenged and quite possibly distrustful of any sort of organized system of data collection? That's hard, you know, and I, I think to add kind of an additional layer to it, you know, right now, most of the data that we're using at homes is, is self-reported information, right? So the best information that we're using to be able to prioritize someone for housing, be able to determine that where they're going to fit in a pretty scarce housing inventory for a lot of communities depends in a lot of ways on how willing they are to be open and honest with the individuals that they're talking with, right? I, I think first and foremost, it comes by being honest and setting clear expectations, you know, with everyone, right? One of the things that we've found a lot of success with some of our communities is that they're, when they're in the field, sh sharing the screen with them, showing them what they're putting in, explaining why and how they're collecting information, and also being upfront about the realistic things to expect from that, right? You're probably not going to get a permit unit tonight. You're probably not going to be in a different situation than you are in the next few hours. You, you may be, right? But whatever it is for that community that that person, at a minimum, kind of, kind of expect from that engagement, even if it is just a callback in the next seven days, that's 
the essential piece, I think, to building the rapport that over time is going to allow you to collect enough information to hopefully have a successful outcome with that uh, household, right? There's a great video on your site or on YouTube, on your YouTube channel, if you search for BitFocus on YouTube, uh, that shows the agency workers on the ground going into some of these communities. It, you know, it's impossible to divorce yourself from the, what it looks like when you see that to see sort of the hesitation at first from you know somebody who's homeless. You might be surprised by the way that they look. You might be surprised that they have family members with them, that they have all their things with them, that it could be new to them. It could be, it just could be how they exist. And then watching their faces as they sort of come to the realization like, okay, you're doing this for me. There might be a really good end of this story. And they make a real human connection. It's something I think people should, uh, should take a look at. And I remember from reporting on veterans affairs in the past that uh, the homeless veteran population is actually a massive issue. Um, mm -hmm. And it's usually one that gets a, a fair amount of media attention as well, because we don't like that narrative in the United States that we have somehow cast aside our, our military veterans. I remember that I learned that the VA was one of the earliest adopters of a data-driven approach to track the movements of veterans who were on the move all the time. And it actually helped create the blueprint for the modern uh, electronic medical record platforms. Are the data you collect ever cross-referenced in, I guess, larger data sets to provide maybe full, accessible, real-time pictures of where the population is moving to the most at-risk people? Is that part of our future? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, the VA is a great example of that. One of the initiatives that we were able to see, I think, some of the greatest success with in terms of homelessness the past decade or so, was the efforts to address veteran homelessness that was part of the Obama administration. And, and I think it was Michelle Obama that was kind of leading that effort, you know. Um, and that has a couple unique advantages when you're working with veterans because there is that public uh, appeal to it to want to make sure that we're, you know, properly serving those who have served us. There's a unique funding stream that's typically available for those that have eligible discharges from prior experience there. And so there's that nice convergence of public will, resources, and a small of the population, you could really see market change that a lot of communities have had success. Not, no one ever ends homelessness, but coming to what they call functional zero for, for that population, right? Where if someone mm. becomes homeless in Nevada, that they're going to be put into a unit as soon as conceivably possible, right? Mm. Um, not that people would never fall into homelessness, but there is for functional purposes, no ongoing homeless population. And that he's in a, Part of that success was being able to tie in the VA's medical system database. Um, and they, to their credit, do have a great nationalized resource there, not just for the uh, medical record itself, but for the broader social engagement of, of the populations they're working with. But we've also seen similar successes with mainstream healthcare providers or what they've called FUSE initiatives in a few of our communities where they're looking at criminal justice, for example, a detention center, um, a local police department, even sanitation or those kind of two-on-one calls and using that data to cross-reference to either prioritize care or in some cases at an individual level, say, you know, these four or five individuals, were we able to have a better housing income for us? We're going to have a much better judicial outcome as well or whatever. Maybe. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. So let's talk about these outcomes. Can you give me a use case, I guess, to, to point to in order to really paint a clear picture of this type of successful outcome in your field? Maybe it's a scenario where a partner of BitFocus was able to utilize your technology and services to improve their internal metrics and make better decisions or foster better outcomes, something like super specific for people to wrap their minds around. Yeah, I think, you know, the best kind of win-win outcome 
that we try to promote our communities is where they're able to use our software kind of end to end to engage a client up front, be able to properly screen and prioritize them for a unit, um, and then be able to track their outcome in a way that's able to demonstrate the savings or the impact that that intervention has had on other systems of care. And hopefully, if all things are going well, generate additional revenue to fund similar solutions for other individuals, right? And so this person came off the street, they had a health issue. Had they been there for a few more days, it would have been critical. They would have been in the emergency room with pneumonia, so on and so forth. Yeah. So it's a night over that individual's head. It's one fewer ER night for the hospital. It's a lower bill for the managed care organization. And it's hopefully the funding for bed number two for that housing provider, right? Right. And if you can get all of those pieces to work well, everyone wins. So right now, obviously the time that we're recording this, we're still in the throes of the pandemic. And the impact of coronavirus is still being tallied in so many different ways, in so many disparate ways, state by state, uh, and country by country for that matter. And I feel like one of the areas that's been touched upon but not fully addressed with measurable data is the impact on the homeless populations in America. You see a lot of headlines about it. There's a lot of people trying to do some really good reporting, but you would probably have better access to that, that initial pass of data than anybody else. Do you have any insight from your work or from your partners about what's happening to that community? Just a little bit. I think like anyone and everyone has had a number of impacts, you know, on, on a, a lot of different levels, right? You know, on, on one front, homeless service providers largely are uh, dense institutional settings often, right? A large number of people in small areas, even if it's in an encampment or an unsheltered situation, it's a dangerous environment, period for a pandemic or any type of contagion to be spreading through. And unfortunately, you're also looking at a population there that has a high comorbidity with other chronic health conditions. A lot of things that would make you more susceptible to the, the type of infection that you could potentially kind of transfer here, right? Those underlying issues that we talk about in the, in, that we hear about in the media. Exactly. I mean, almost across the board, I think you'll see a higher prevalences of those, you know, other chronic health conditions, obesity, age, whatever it may be, right? You see it, yeah. unfortunately, greater in a homeless population typically, right? And you're also looking at a situation that has, for a long time, had less access to institutional care and healthcare generally. They're going into that with a fewer opportunities for support, et cetera, and then a system itself that is overall strained. The positive side to that, though, is the pandemic has brought a lot of additional funding and resources that are targeted broadly at helping communities address the pandemic, but can be uniquely applied to this population to not only help them have better outcomes in terms of COVID-19, but hopefully in terms of their long-term housing and stability there. Were there opportunities, you know, to use FEMA funds or otherwise to put people into hotels? And from a, from a housing perspective, there's a lot of opportunity in the greater inventory we're seeing in urban markets, in hotels, et cetera, those things. If we're able to get someone into a, a stable housing situation, regardless of any other impact that we, or service we provide them, Research will say that we'll have a noticeable impact on everything else, that race prediction will go down, that our chances of having them have a positive outcome long term will go up. And so simply being able to kind of use this as an opportunity to get people along that path to a more stable situation, I think, has been the focus of the field right now. All right. So let me switch back to the, the business use case for a second. And I'm going to... Uh... At risk of insulting you, I'm going to oversimplify and generalize something about your industry to tease out something here. Feel free to disabuse me of any wrongheaded notions about the question itself. <laughs> um, but my sense is that the government agencies or the service agencies that are your clients 
are challenged in terms of technology or access to it. And it's, this isn't a user thing. This is a just we have not upgraded the IT infrastructure in several municipalities across the country. So is it a fair assessment or do you find that your clients are easily uh, able to adopt clarity as a platform? No, I mean, I think by most measures, you know, homelessness, whether or not it's, you know, at a community level, at a provider level, or, you know, even with the state or federal government, isn't up to its peer systems in terms of healthcare or other institutional uh, services. That's for a number of reasons, I think, though. But what we do have is, I think, a quick adoption once people kind of dive into some of these tools, you know. And so we've never had anything close to location or GIS information within HMIS up to this point is still not part of the federal standards or those kind of cases. But yet we've seen our communities uh, would provide them with these tools, pick them up remarkably rapidly, quickly transform their you know outreach approaches around them, and be able to leverage these things in terms of their day-to-day workflows and business practices. So it's certainly not, I think, a, a, a statement about the industry or its ability to, to make effective uses of this technology, more than the opportunity that, um, unfortunately, a lot of these providers have had to have access to that kind of uh, technology and professional supports. Yeah, I imagine it's actually a, they, they breathe a sigh of relief when when they can work with a uh, a functioning cloud platform that's you know constantly updated and not falling apart or you know you don't have to call the IT person in to fix something every ten seconds. That has to be actually a breath of fresh air for a lot of them. Oh, totally. I mean, you know, these are people who are using you know all these services across every other facet of their life, right? And if right. when their online baking platform seems much more modern than what you're using seven up to your eight hours a day at work. Something's not right there, you know. Yeah. You ever walk into like a, a, a bank and see like the screens and it still has the green <laughs> like f- type font on there? You're like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to be banking here anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't instill confidence. I mean, that's a true too, you know, especially when you're talking about youth clients or some of these other pieces. That's, there is kind of an impact I think some of the technology you have does have on people's confidence. I imagine that the services and the breadth of your platform have evolved over time. And some of that evolution is from the experience you've had with your customers and them asking for certain things or asking for new features on the platform. What are some of the biggest changes that you've seen? And are there things on the roadmap that you're looking forward to improving upon or expanding? Yeah, there's, we have a lot of exciting things coming up uh, these next few months. So excited about all that. But all of the enhancements to our platform have been largely driven by our customers and the community partners we're working with. Um, one of the areas where we've seen a lot of pressure um, and desire to move forward on is to be able to capture things prior to a formal engagement in a homeless service provider. So like, it takes a while to get someone's trust to be able to get them actually into a housing unit or maybe to convince them to leave their encampment or whatever it may be and move to a different situation. Uh, Being able to track that engagement progressively from that first outreach or contact all the way through where you do have that trust and the inventory available to place someone um, has been there. We're trying to focus a lot on in the past few months here. So we've been rolling out a, a dedicated outreach tool to allow people who are in the field with a mobile device, your iPad, your phone, to be able to tag a location, take a picture, and start to develop that relationship piece by piece. And that also ties directly with all of the reservation and prioritization and placement tools that come behind that. We've seen a lot of success with our communities being able to unify their community's approach to how they place people into housing. So instead of, you know, kind of what units are available to you being the luck of what door you knock on, make it so that universally across the community, you're able to take advantage of that inventory holistically and use it as best you can for the population as a whole, right? 
And so as communities can get their policies in line to do that, that's a great opportunity for the technology side to be able to facilitate uh, those placements and reservations more efficiently. And if you can get things right, you know, right from that first engagement, potentially see what units that person might be eligible for, snag it and get them in there. The other side that's really exciting we've seen is, I think, direct engagement with the clients themselves, right? You know, just like I have with my healthcare provider, I can log in, see my appointments, my test scores, mm-hmm. whether or not my blood pressure is going up or down, right? Want to have a similar experience for that people who are dealing with their front end agency providers, you know, where they can log in, confirm that they are still, you know, on that wait list, do have that appointment set up, access crucial documents, you know, have that kind of lifeline from wherever they may be with their care team, even if that's outside the physical boundaries of the shelter or service center there. Amazing. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So, then lastly, some integrations too. So we're trying to really try to make it a platform for that homeless data, right? So mm-hmm. be able to have a, a more meaningful transactional connection with, you know, your local Salesforce instance that's helping that small agency that provides a piece of the puzzle, but isn't primarily focused on homelessness, that large healthcare system, et cetera. Got it. So if you had the opportunity then to speak with prospective clients uh, around the country and deliver one message about BitFocus, what would it be? Homelessness is perhaps like the greatest challenge that we're facing often with our communities and our societies. Just like your firefighters, your police officers, your medical workers, you want to make sure the essential workers who are on the front lines of your homeless systems have the best tools available. It's both a respect to them and their kind of profession and also just kind of a sign of the commitment that you're making. Um, as a community to try to move the ball forward there. Incredible. Jeff, is there anything we didn't cover that you'd like our listeners to know about BitFocus or Clarity Human Services as a platform? No, I appreciate the chance to be on here with you, Jed. I think more than anything else, just what a privilege it is to work with the community providers that do use Clarity Human Services. You know, it, it often feels like, you know, you put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in the software, the support, or whatever it may be, but it, it really pales in the comparison to the investment that the frontline staff is putting into addressing homelessness in this country. That's great. Well, we appreciate you. We appreciate uh, certainly the work that you're uh, helping to facilitate among those frontline workers. To learn more about BitFocus, you can visit their website at bitfocus.com. Jeff, can't thank you enough for agreeing to come on the show. Thank you. No, likewise. Thank you. This was fun. Aloha. As always, we appreciate you tuning in. If you have any suggestions for a guest on the show, feel free to email us at growforgood at moricreative.com. And if you like the show, Like us, rate us, and review us wherever you download podcasts. The Grow for Good podcast is produced and distributed by Mori Creative Studios, a Diamond HubSpot partner agency that helps organizations leverage HubSpot to achieve sustainable growth. Grow for Good is a registered trademark of Mori Creative Studios. This is a Mori Creative Studios podcast.